Maximalism doesn't need minimalism in order to survive. Minimalism relies on maximalism to have something to denounce, whereas maximalism is much too big to fail. Welcome to Rodeo Drive, the podcast, the show about the visionaries who keep three blocks in Beverly Hills at the forefront of fashion and culture. I'm Kathy Gohari with the Rodeo Drive Committee. And I'm Frances Anderton, sitting in as your host for this episode of Rodeo Drive, the podcast. The holiday season is in full swing and boutique windows are glittering on Rodeo Drive. So who better to talk to right now than the famed window dresser, Simon Doonan? When he was creative director at Barney's, Simon never missed an opportunity for maximal effect with storefront displays that transformed fashion retail into spectacle. Well, now he's a writer and an eminence on all things style related, and he has just released a new book about rooms tricked out at full volume. It is called Maximalism, Bold, Bedazzled, Gold and Tasseled Interiors and it features lavish spaces around the world. The opulent bedroom of Ludwig II at Neuschwanstein Castle in Bavaria, for example. A Bel Air bedroom with no surface untouched by Kelly Whistler. The candy-coloured Trixie Motel in Palm Springs by Danny Daisy. And Simon's own bedazzling New York apartment, designed by his husband, Jonathan Adler. I caught up with Simon on Zoom and we talked about why you can never layer on too much and how maximalism is right at home in Los Angeles, dating from the golden age of Hollywood. It's not just interiors, like... Um, maximalism, everything from Busby Berkeley to the architecture, Tiny Nailers, coffee shop. It's like maximalism has a very profound link to LA, I think. And showbiz is is inherently maximalist. I was thinking about maximalism today. Like there are many trends currently, but maximalism is definitely a trend. If you think about these new performing venues and concerts like Taylor Swift, Harry Styles, um, all of these people now do these maximal shows. And, you know, Harry Styles ran for 15 nights subsequently at Madison Square Garden. Everybody gets dressed up to go. Everything about it is maximal. So there, there's a maximal trend. People, I think, because we live in such a visual, screeny kind of world, that maximalism like minimal decor doesn't mean anything online visually or on your phone or on TikTok. Everything has to be maximal. And LA is at the center of the culture in so many ways. So, yeah. I perhaps spend too much time in the architecture world where a lot of architects have not gotten the maximalism message yet. They are still extremely minimalist and they're extremely nervous of, of, of even, even of color, let alone layering on the brocade or whatever. So there is a kind of corner of the design world that is still hardcore minimalist. Are they somehow missing the joy, do you think? Not really. I think the thing to remember is that there's a lot of ways to slice it and chacun a son goût. And <laughs> any given time, there's you know, uh, at Barney's, when it was primarily a men's business years ago, we used to say there isn't one way for men to look. There are about eight. And I that left a big impression on me because I think that's the same with design. There isn't one 
prevailing look. There's about four or five probably that you could chart. And there are there are definitely minimalist trends. I just think maximalism is more life affirming and maximalism doesn't need minimalism in order to survive. Minimalism relies on maximalism to have something to denounce, whereas maximalism is much too big to fail. You know, it's like uh, less is bore and uh, all that stuff that uh, maximalist designers um, can just have a good laugh and watch people tormenting themselves with minimalism. There's another trend, too, that you might be referring to, and that is with this sort of frenzy of art collecting. You know, everyone you meet is an art collector now. They like they tend to go for a more minimalist interior because they don't realize you can slam your paintings onto a very heavily patterned wall and they might look great. You know, there's a lot of white wall interiors at the moment because I think of the they're looking for a gallery-esque kind of situation to park their prestige art purchases but so that's another another trend but like i say i think there's probably if you and i sat here we could name all the different trends but i think maximalism is the most life affirming the most fun the most like thing the most memorable things you'll you'll always remember etc etc Yes, and and ultimately, possibly the most human, because to be human is to decorate. I think, which which drew me back to a quote that I got once in a, in an interview with Frank Gehry, who you cite in the book as a maximalist. And at that conversation, Frank, in connection with this topic, said pithily, "Minimalism is a dead end." Yeah, um, you know, a bunker is a bunker is a bunker. You can only <laughs> you can only keep pairing things down for so long before there's nothing there. Whereas That's exactly. You could, you know, you can become a maximalist hoarder and just keep adding and adding and adding. <laughs> and I do have to ask you, you know, at what point does Maxi, as you condense maximalism down to, at what point does Maxi become messy? Because, yes, there is the world of hoarders. Um there is my own husband with perhaps a bit too many books, too many glam posters from the 1970s, you know, a bit too many cushions that were inspired by Jimi Hendrix's apartment in London in, in the mid-60s. For you, with the design eye, when does it tip from maxi to messy? I don't really have a very strong position about things. Like if somebody is happy <laughs> and their apartment looks like a good reflection of them, you know, you do you, boo. People always wanted me to be one of those disdainful, snooty queens that would look down through their lorgnette disapprovingly at something. And I've never been that person. I think it's because I grew up working class in England and I went to Butlins, you know, when I was 10 years old for two weeks. And you sort of get drenched in the the, the fabulosity of maximalism. So, no, I've never, you know, I, I like to see people who look happy and look like themselves and the same with their houses. So there's no point at which I I pull out my red pencil and start saying, start <laughs> suggesting an edit of things because I don't have that responsibility. I've never been an interior designer. You know, all I ever did with my windows was pile as much stuff in there as I could conceivably get in the door. 
You're listening to Simon Doonan, author of Maximalism, Bold, Bedazzled, Gold and Tasseled Interiors. He opens his fabulous book with a story about an encounter with the late great designer Tony Duquette at his home Dornridge in Beverly Hills. Duquette was a protégé of the society interior designer Elsie DeWolf. He created costumes and sets for Fred Astaire musicals and for theatre, opera and ballet. He won a Tony Award for Best Costume for the original Broadway production of Camelot. And in his 80s, he designed unique fine jewellery for Tom Ford at Gucci. Meanwhile, at Dornridge, Duquette created his personal world. He filled his home and garden with antiques, chinoiseries, sunburst sculptures, gold leafing, tapestries and cleverly upcycled trash. It was, right, Simon, an unhinged visual extravaganza. I lived in L.A. and I was fortunate to meet so many great people who were maximalists themselves. And Annie Kelly, who's married to Tim Street Porter, and Lisa Eisner, fantastic jewelry designer, fashion maximalist, they said to me, oh, we'll introduce you to Tony Duquette. Maybe you can show his jewelry at Barney's. So I, they schlepped me over to Dawn Ridge, his wonderful house, um, where he lived with his wife, Beagle, who um, both of them are now deceased, obviously. And uh, <clears throat> um, he's about six foot taller than me. He was sort of like a priest. He opened the door looking like a priest with max massive rings on both hands and a strange turban and these big robes. It was like you were going into Dorian Gray's apartment, you know, like a fan de siècle eccentric. And um, he showed me around and it was really delightful because he'd made, he had a wonderful um, sense of grandiosity, but it was mixed with um, a craftiness where he would take things like plastic drinking glasses and make them into an incredible chandelier and using found objects. And anyway, we chatted and I pitched him. I said, you know, if you give your jewelry collection exclusively to Barney's, we can do a launch. And so he said, well, let me think about it and I'll call me in in a week. So I called him and he said, yes, I've decided I'd like to do it, but I have a few provisos. I want you to flood the main floor with water and put real water lilies everywhere, those giant ones with my jewelry floating on it. And I was so delighted by this response. So clearly it was completely unviable and over the top because I thought, well, that is a maximalist. It's reckless. It's exhibitionistic. It's life enhancing. It's just completely mad. And, um, you know, and he was deadly serious. He said, I want to see a lily pond there on the main floor. And, um, you know, of course we weren't able to do it, but I've never forgotten it. And I thought, yeah, that's a true maximalist. They're very uncompromising and uh, completely fabulous, you know, and that's why um, they serve that role, almost like a mythological role in society. Let's talk about some of the completely um, OTT interiors in the book, a lot of them in grand palaces, I have to say, and um a fair good number in in New York, a good number in Italy, and also a good number, I will say, where where there's blue, a lot of blue, and I particularly love the one that was blue tile. 
and it was like relentless blue decorated tile. Can you please comment on that? Because I did find it really interesting. Yeah, monochromatic. You you can achieve a lot with with monochromatic drama, especially if it's taken to its absolutely insane conclusion, like the Blue Room and the Jaipur Palace, which has... is marvelous. Yeah. Oh, and there's... by the way, if one's going to look for a country that dominates in maximalism, I think India would be a candidate. Would you? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so the one you cited was Emilio Terry and Carlos de Pistigi, the Chateau de Grousset Tartar tent, Ile de France, France, 1963. Right, so that, that was it. And uh, yeah, it's... It's just like taken to its complete lunatic conclusion, and it is very compelling and very, and and of course it's empty. It doesn't even have any blue furniture in it, so that adds to the drama, especially in juxtaposition with the other more cluttered ones. It's almost reminded me actually of the sort of the Taj Mahal or something, where you actually stick, as you say, completely monochrome but uh, but completely decorated. But but anyway, the book has an abundance. Just tell us one that you know comes with a great story. Maybe it's even your own place because there's quite a few of of your and Johnny's place in New York. I would hate to sound self-promoting, so um, <laughs> thank you for noticing. That, yeah, well, my husband and I both have a maximalist bent as it were. Um, the one I'd like to cite is not one of ours. I'm so magnanimous and self-denying. Um, I was very happy that we were able to include Trixie Motel. It's marvelous yeah. in Palm Springs, yes. Yeah. The point of that is that obviously going back to Louis XIV and the 18th century and blah-de-blah, -blah, maximalism was the prerogative of the wealthy and the aristocratic. And, and um, now the point of Trixie Motel is that there is no budget now. You can be a maximalist crafter. You can make it yourself. You can DIY. It's the democratization of maximalism has happened. So it's no longer an elitist um, pursuit, an elitist drug as it were, anyone can get addicted to maximalism. Like there's another room in here that was in Nest magazine when it first started that has Xeroxes of Vahara Fawcett all around the room as wallpaper. So I thought that was really great. You know, there's obviously you think of the great, the grand palaces of the world and blah, de blah. But um, the idea that Anyone can have a go with maximalism. You can get fluorescent paint and, and put polka dots all over your room, like Yoyo Kusama kind of thing. So, like, uh, it's it's not an elitist thing. It's it's something you can enjoy and indulge in yourself, regardless of budget. There is this segment of the affluent that has the prestige art that actually has chosen to be more Spartan and ascetic than than people who aren't rich so it's almost that's one of the most hilarious thing like um you know somebody becomes so wealthy and somehow so hedge fundy that the only way they can um find pleasure is to is to build a concrete bunker on a swedish island and go and hide in it you know what i mean it's like it's it's kind of hilarious that like it you know when when people 
get initially they make a bit of dough they get they start buy some clothes get dressed up blah 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 but then super super elite wealthy people often just wear gray t-shirts and um you know it's kind of or very very quiet luxury their luxury is so quiet that it's you know even a dog can't hear it's screaming you know like so I find that that's a kind of hilarious trend too and it makes you realize that maximalism um, is is sort of there's an honesty about it. It's like it's sort of showing off, which is kind of an infantile impulse and a very human impulse. And um, you know, it, it's a great impulse. It's sort of a an entertaining impulse. Whereas retreating into a world of sort of um, pared down battleship gray minimalism is sort of there's something sort of strangely self-punitive and ungenerous about it and i think that succession drilled down into that that show and then also i think there's a lot of conversation about it when um when gwyneth paltrow was in that bizarre court case you know and everybody was analyzing her clothes and how this very earth tony soft grays you know how 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 redolent they were of extreme wealth if you knew how to read the um the knitwear I just looked at the quote from Chanel. I don't care what you think about me. I don't think about you at all. <laughs> so that's very reminds me. I'm just reading about these dandies, you know, 19th century dandies. And one of Baudelaire's famous quotes is like, it's the pleasure of, of, of um, astonishing others while remaining completely, you know, unastonished yourself. <laughs> you know, like, there's something very true true hardcore maximalists are often very very um i guess that's narcissistic when you're just like you're you're wanting to you're you're getting pleasure from astonishing other people and i think great maximalist architects do that they're not narcissistic they're just very creative and they like they're barnum and bailey you know they want to entertain and to astonish other people oh yeah yeah no pure theater pure theater there is a sort of, I guess, artist soul in a maximalist, you know, because it's the um, it's the never ending artwork that they're that they're producing. Um, when you say that, I think of Peter Marino and Martin Lawrence Bullard, and they do have an mm-hmm. artist soul, and and Kelly Wurzler definitely mm-hmm. have a have a total artist soul. Now, I suppose one of the defenses of minimalism is that it is more calming, and that all this stuff all these bibelots can be kind of exhausting on the eye um, and therefore thereby on the soul. Um, I'm assuming you disagree, but it can, it can a maximalist space also be a relaxing space or is it by definition stimulatory? That's a good question. I mean, most of the maximalists I know, they love to go to Amangiri uh, or, or um, you know, uh, Big Sur to and sit in a, a minimal place or or Japan, you know, where they have an incredible taste level regarding serenity and decor. So yeah, I think that they're, they're not mutually exclusive. And um probably a lot of people who live in maximalist homes, every now and again, they let out a high-pitched scream and run outside and just stare at the sky. That's why they go to places like Amangiri, where they get a little lemon sorbet from their life of a hyperstimulation. 
Simon Doonan is author of Maximalism, Bold, Bedazzled Gold and Tasseled Interiors, published by Fiden. This comes hot on the heels of another book that he wrote, which also celebrates glitter and glam, but this time in the 1970s music and fashion scene in London and New York. This book is called Transformer, a story of glitter, glam and loving Lou Reed. And I could not wrap a chat about maximalism without asking Simon about this book too. Yeah, the Lou Reed book came out last, a year ago, essentially. It came out on the anniversary of the release of the album Transformer, which is November 1972. So it was a year ago on last November that it came out. I was just interested just because the book seemed to suggest a sort of response to a younger generation that doesn't fully get Lou Reed. Well, I certainly thought young, I, I, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, young people are going to love this because this is the guy that wrote Walk on the Wild Side, um, uh, which became the number one jukebox song in America in 1973. So if you're interested in the trans world of trans, you know, these are icons, Candy Darling, Hollywood Lawn, Jackie Curtis, and Lou sort of sang about them. And and I guess the vast majority of people were so baffled, they really didn't know what they were listening to, but they liked the song because of the do, 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 do. And so, yeah, it was an interesting time. And, uh, freewheeling time, the 70s, and definitely a non-binary time. If you look at how Bowie presented himself, everyone was kind of a bit of everything. It was super androgynous and glamorous, but not really politicized back then. It was more because I think the stakes were lower and it wasn't um, mainstream. So the Ziggy Stardust idea of men wearing makeup and all that stuff. And then Lou obviously became influenced by that for a short period and got into the, the glam rock culture because he made that album in London and London was the epicenter of all that sort of glamorous androgyny and playful and glam rock, which was anti-serious you know, and apolitical in many ways, but ultimately political without intending to be because Candy Darling and Jackie and um, Holly Woodlawn, they weren't explicitly political, but their lives were a political statement because they were so out there and so daring and so um, bold that ultimately they become, you know, activists without ever even realizing it because they their their basic needs were sort of not really being met, so they were focused on that survival, you know. Yeah, it was more like I think it's relevant today because of the fascinating wave of glamour of trans that is in our culture. And I think, yeah, I, I thought about that all the way through the book. Oh, this will this will be interesting to people who maybe didn't I weren't so familiar with this period where androgyny was so central with the New York dolls and all the glam rock artists played with androgyny. But did the book, did your book get the reaction? Have young people been interested in it? Or is it more our generation that remembers it, sees it as just a lovely uh, sort of acknowledgement of that period that left such a deep impression? It's people like myself who loved glam rock because a lot of Lou Reed fans really only 
they remember they, they're very into the Velvet Underground years and then they skip right to Berlin. And that's the Lou that they like, the, the, the New York street poet, the not the tarted up guy who who did an album with David Bowie and Mick Ronson. But it's quite niche, Transformer, because like all the people I know are really into it because they remember the fashion from it from a fashion point of view and from a Bowie point of view. So if you I I came to that album through Bowie, he's the one that talked about the Velvet Underground. I'd never heard of them. Back back before Ziggy Stardust came out, he was talking about the Velvet Underground and you know doing um waiting for the man and all that stuff in his concerts. So um yeah, the lens of Bowie, I think Bowie fans found Transformer. Um and uh it's just it's there waiting for people to discover it. But a lot of a lot of the Lou's main fan base, well, as Lou himself, you know, he kind of a little bit turned on it afterwards, because that's a hard thing for a creative person who's struggling as he was before doing this record. And it made him a it made him a star, it made him a um uh, you know, and not not a group. It was just him, like Bowie at right. the front. And and I think that was a lot that was uh, he was ambivalent about it because it was like, well, was this me or, um, you know, was this David? Because if you <laughs> listen to the album, it really sounds a lot like a Bowie record. Ken Scott, the guy who produced it, he's he describes the processes of um, Lou taught the songs, the chord changes to Mick Ronson. Mick Ronson worked on arrangements with Bowie. And then they laid it all down and then they got Lou back in to lay down the vocals. And that's actually what it sounds like mm. and why it has sort of unique, unique feel to it. Cause it's feels like Bowie, but with Lou's poetry on top of it and that, and it feels very Warhol, which was the main theme of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But years later, Lou said, we thought it was horrible that gay people didn't have the love songs that they deserve the love oh. songs. And he said that a few years, a couple of years later in an interview. Um, and uh, that's very sweet, but it was about that. And it was about Warhol. It was about a lot of things. And it was about him trying to get back into the music business. So it's a fascinating moment, um, you know, where he's one minute, he's back living with his parents. Lou was, you know, working in his dad's law office. He'd fired Andy Warhol, got rid of John Cale, left the Velvet Underground. And, uh, yeah, it was a fascinating moment that, you know, he Bowie had said to him, well, I'll produce your record. And Bowie's 25 years old at the time, and he's just got his Ziggy incarnation, which he spent 10 years trying to become famous, and now he's done it. And he's like, well, I'll do your album. And he's saying to Iggy Pop, I'll do your album. I'll produce your album. Like, that is some serious gonads. Yeah, that's a nicer word, isn't it? That's some serious chutzpah, which you think he truly is. It was an exceptional person. Like when you were 25, were you going up to people and saying you produced their records? You know, it's audacious and a reflection of the drive and the creativity and the ideas. Think about Bowie. He'd never short of ideas, more ideas than he knew what to do with. And the same could be said for the endlessly inventive Simon Doonan. 
author of Transformer, a story of glitter, glam rock and loving Lou Reed, and the newly published Maximalism, bold, bedazzled, gold and tasseled interiors. Have fun to talk with him. I'm Francis Anderton, guest host on this closing episode of season four of Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is presented by the Rodeo Drive Committee with the support of the Heyman family, to Rodeo Drive, Beverly Wilshire, a Four Seasons Hotel, and the Beverly Hills Conference and Visitors Bureau. I'm Kathy Gohari with the Rodeo Drive Committee. Join us on Instagram at Rodeo Drive.